as we continue our study in Paul's letter to the Galatians, we find ourselves in chapter 5, which begin with amazingly powerful words, in my opinion. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. This actually comes after the last verse of chapter 4, and chapter divisions can be helpful and sometimes they get in the way. If you look at the end of chapter 4, Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. And then, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. As wonderful as these words are, they raise a certain question. Are we free or not? I mean, either one is free or one is not free. Last Sunday, we saw that underlying Paul's writing is his view of God's working in history. Oftentimes, people see the gospel as the announcement of salvation with something sort of tacked on at the end that you get to go to heaven. In fact, it is not an announcement of an eschatol- of a salvation with an eschatology. It is that God has come into history. He has broken into history. The coming of the kingdom, the coming of the age of the Son and the Spirit. As we saw in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. God the Father sent God the Son into human history, and he has begun the work of redemption, now being carried on by God the Spirit. Thus we find what we call the already-not-yet structure in the New Testament. We must affirm that something has happened, something definitive has already happened, And as a church, as a congregation, we are a community that lives recognizing that reality. And so Paul can write what he does at the beginning of chapter 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. But there is more to come. The gospel points to a twofold reality. The already of what Christ has accomplished and the not yet of its fulfillment in its entirety. I think being human, we want it one way or the other. Okay, It's either already or it's not yet, but not both and. Um, I think that's just the way we are as humans. On the one hand, a part of us wants to embrace the already. But interestingly enough, already but not in Jesus Christ. In the modern world, we have a sense that we have arrived, that we've achieved it all. Um, In modernity, there is an almost... Well, not almost, I think, a a sense of confidence, overpowering confidence and arrogance that we do not see through a glass darkly, that in the modern world we think we know it all. So the already part of the modern mind, it's a part of the modern mind, is not uh, in Jesus the crucified Messiah, but in ourselves. The already, or the not yet, I would say, is an offense to modern confidence. How dare you say not yet, because, in fact, we think we have achieved. On the other hand, when we think a little more clearly, we do reject the notion of having arrived. We know that there are plenty of problems in the world, and so we reject this arrogance of the modern world. But if we're not careful, we will go from one extreme of of this overpowering confidence to another sense of not yet, but almost not yet, as in never will be. That somehow the world is just going to go on endlessly. And in fact, when someone says, don't judge, whether they say it rightly or wrongly, in a sense, that person is implying that there will never be a final judgment. 
So don't judge. And one of the reasons that we in Scripture say don't judge is because we know at the end of time there will be a final judgment. But a part of us, I think, sort of rejects that. And so we want to sort of live an aimless life in which there is no beginning and no end and we just sort of wander through life. No final word, no final judgment, no final text or interpretation. So when you say already, there's part of us that really struggles with that. As God's people, as his children, we must acknowledge that Christ has already come. That Jesus is the crucified Messiah. That the new age has already begun. That of the Son and the Spirit. It is true that we live in an age when evil is done and not righted. When injustice is done and not corrected. But that's okay because we know that one day all things will be made right. So there is a sense of already and yet we know things aren't yet the way they should be. And so it's not yet. At the end of time things will be made right. Here we have temporary and partial words. The final word has not yet been spoken. So I said last Sunday, any confidence we have in anything is in the fact of the hope that one day God will make things right. Otherwise, I think we would just lose our minds or we would just become deeply cynical and bitter. We know that one thing, one day things will be made right. Yes, we fight for justice now, and we saw this in a series on just war. But we know that full justice will not be achieved in this age in the same way that perfection is not achievable in this age. So we say, already, but not yet. So we are God's people. Our sins are forgiven. And yet we sin. We confess our sins. Because the final word has not yet been spoken. Paul can speak so definitely about the coming of Jesus, the union that we have with him, that our old identity is set aside, that we become the children of God, that we become heirs of God. Yes, this is possible because Jesus is the son that reached maturity and put the law in its place. At the same time, Paul can say, until Christ is formed in you. And you're like, wait a minute. If I am... If I have union with Christ, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet Christ lives in me. If we say that, how can Paul say Christ is being formed in you? It is the already, but not yet. So in a real sense, the Galatians are the children of God. They have been redeemed from the slavery of sin and idolatry. Yet they are also in the process of being redeemed. That's why Paul writes this letter. Otherwise, it's like, what, you guys are saved Okay, you might go into false doctrine, but that's okay. Your ticket's been punched and you're going to heaven. No, yes, they are the children of God, but there is a process that is still ongoing. The men from Jerusalem have said, eh, it's not, you're not done yet. They would reject the already. You need to be circumcised. Um, how does Paul, what does Paul tell the Galatians? How are they to respond to these false teachers? Well, we saw three parts. First of all, in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, stand firm. The Galatians are torn. Paul came into town. They loved what he had to say. They embraced the gospel. They were converted. The Spirit of God came in them. And suddenly, some new guys come into town, and they're like, you know what Paul told you was good, but it was incomplete. 
And these guys know a lot more about the Old Testament than the Galatians do. And so the Galatians are sort of torn as to which way they should turn. I mentioned this last week. I think they were experiencing a type of theological vertigo. The world sort of spinning around. And Paul says, stand firm. The second thing he says is, wait for the not yet. If you look at verse number 5 of chapter 5, but by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. That's what's going to come at the end of time. So wait for the not yet. You are the children of God, and yet in a real sense, you will become fully the children of God when Christ returns. The full experience of sonship has yet to be experienced. It will only happen when Jesus comes back. So wait, wait for it through the Spirit. And then the third thing he, does, he said is live lives of faith expressing itself in love. This is verse number six. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. In verse five, we read of hope. In verse six, we read of faith and love. The three ideas that we find together in Paul's writings. A Christian has faith in Jesus Christ loves him and all who belong to him, and hopes for the world to come. But it is love that faith, it is in love that faith manifests itself. Today we're going to look at verses 7 through 12. And and I want you to consider something, the context surrounding it. Verse number 1, if you look at it, says, It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. If you look at verse number 13, You, my brothers, were called to be free. So freedom on both ends of the passage. And then the last verse, uh, the last words of verse number six, that's right before our passage. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. In between, we have seven through twelve, which are startling in their effect if you read them, uh, read them closely and carefully. The image that comes to mind for me is that of channel surfing. You sit in front of the TV with the remote and just click, click, click. Uh, I'm reminded of the Bruce Springsteen song, uh, 57 Channels and Nothing On, which, by the way, came out in 1992. I mean, here we are almost 20 years later. Uh, He'd probably write 570 channels and nothing on. But when I say channel surfing, I'm not thinking about when you do it. I'm thinking about it when the person next to you does that. My wife is shaking her head. I'm usually the one with the remote. Click, click. But when somebody else is doing it, they click on a channel, and just as you have a sense of what it is, they go to the next one. And you go to the, and then they go to the next one. And just this real sense of disorientation because they just keep going. Well, if you look at these verses, that is very much, I think, the effect of what we find here. In these six verses... Paul will use at least six metaphors. Actually, one he uses twice, so we would say seven metaphors. He uses an image or a a particular vocabulary to convey an idea that he's trying to get across. He begins with athletics, moves to the courtroom, goes to the kitchen, returns to the courtroom. Then the idea of being a proselyting Jewish preacher. Then he goes to the place of execution and finally to self-mutilation, usually in a temple setting. Not only does Paul have us running like mad, going from metaphor to metaphor, jumping from one to the other, the passage ends with perhaps the most shocking statement in all of Paul's writings. 
Let's read the passage and then go through it verse by verse. Verse number 7. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Okay, the first metaphor is in verse number 7. You were running a good race. Paul begins on the running track. Being a Christian has been described as running a race. Paul's used the metaphor elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. And then a few verses later, Therefore I do not run like a man running aimlessly. In other words, don't run here or there. You stay on the track. But Paul grew up in Tarsus, in the province of Cilicia, which is actually south-southeast of Galatia. Um, it has been argued that even though he grew up in a Gentile city, that he himself, as a self-respecting Jew, would never attend athletic events, usually because they were dedicated to a pagan god or gods, and because the participants always participated in the nude. And for an Orthodox Jew, this would be uh, offensive. I'm not so sure that I would make that case. Paul seems very, very familiar with the athletic events and uses it throughout his writings as a metaphor. Including, by the way, earlier in this book, in chapter 2, verse number 2, uh, he's talking about his second trip to Jerusalem. I went in response to Revelation and set before them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles, but I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear I was running or had run my race in vain. This is very much Paul's vocabulary, and so I suspect he was familiar with the games that were, would occur in the amphitheaters in the various towns. The picture that he draws is that of an athlete. Here it is, the Galatians who are running a race. And they're doing well. And then suddenly something happens. It isn't that they've slowed down, or that they've become lazy. What seems to have happened is that someone has jumped on the track in front of them. And I think the closest we would come to understanding this, if somebody comes on to make a political statement, here you are, you're running a race, let's say the 10,000 meter, you have to go around the track a bunch of times, and all of a sudden, here somebody jumps out with a placard or a banner for some political purpose, and interrupt the race, ultimately. Paul wants to know, who did this to you? Who cut in on you? And kept you from obeying the truth. You had a goal. That is obeying the gospel. And someone cut in on you. To prevent you from continuing to run toward that goal of obeying. Well how did they cut in? Well here Paul mixes or switches his metaphors in verse number 8. That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. Generally speaking, I'm not happy with most English translations in the book of Galatians. Here, I think most of them have got it right. Because it doesn't seem to make sense. Verse number 7, we're on a running track, we're in an amphitheater. In verse number 8, persuasion is a very legal term, we're in a courtroom. 
Verse 7, Paul talks about someone cutting in. In verse number 8, he writes about persuasion. And if we knew Greek, this would be, I think, more evident to us. The word for obey is also the word for persuaded. And that's the connection between verses 7 and 8. The word comes from a courtroom setting in which you have a clever advocate, a clever lawyer, who's trying to persuade the judge or the jury that the case is right. For Paul, it is not a matter of legal tricks, of somehow trying to persuade someone to use various logical tricks to get someone on your side. It is a matter of truth. If it is true that the Messiah has died and been raised, then this in turn establishes a network of truth that carries its own powers of persuasion. So if you read this passage, Paul does not see himself as the one who persuaded the Galatians that the gospel is true. This is the work of God. The God who called the Galatians to be his people. By the way, if you look at verse number 8, I caught myself as I was preparing my notes, Paul does not say called, past tense. He uses the present tense, calls. There's an ongoing relationship in which we come to see the truth because God is interacting with us. So again, the first metaphor, you're running a race and then somebody tries to jump in front of you to persuade you that you're doing something wrong, that you need to change what you are doing. The third metaphor doesn't seem connected to the first two at all. It's in the kitchen. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Suddenly we're, we're baking bread. In today's world, if you're going to bake bread and you want to get yeast, you go to the grocery store and you buy, usually it's a little packet of yeast. Um, in Paul's day, that's not how it was done. Women would make bread every day. And so what they would do after kneading the bread is they would take off a piece of the dough and they would keep it for tomorrow's bread. Because, and then the next day as they would put the the ingredients together, they would take that and put it in, and the yeast that was in that little piece of dough would work its way through the whole, the whole batch. Once a year in Jewish society, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you threw out all your bread. There's no more yeast, and you start over after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You start all over. But for the rest of the year, it's just from one day to the next. And you're able to do that because of the nature of yeast. That somehow yeast, you put it in there and it just spreads throughout the dough. In the teachings of Jesus, yeast is seen as a euphemism or metaphor for sin. It has the capacity to infect everything. As Paul dealt with the problem of sin in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, he used this same phrase, by the way, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. The implication was clear. There's a man who's committing sin. He's not ashamed. He's not embarrassed. He's not confessing it. Paul said that will infect the whole congregation. Here the picture is, if you allow one change to come in, if you allow the men from Jerusalem to come in and say, circumcision, that's like putting yeast in your dough and it will contaminate, it will affect everything. If the men, if the men of Galatia, or the Galatians listen to the men from Jerusalem, it will profoundly affect every area of their lives. Verse number 10 is the fourth metaphor. It's actually the third one. It's used again. We're back in the courtroom. 
I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. The word confident is the same word in Greek, persuaded. Paul, as judge and jury, has arrived at a verdict about the Galatians and about the one who is causing the confusion. Paul was persuaded in the Lord, which would seem to indicate that it wasn't sort of a, yeah, I've got a good feeling about this type of thing, but that God had given him a sense of assurance um, that the Galatians would make the right decision, that they would not follow the false teacher, they would stay with the gospel. But he reaches a verdict not only about the Galatians, but the one who is causing the trouble. This is the first time in this whole book that Paul has spoken about an individual. Up to this point, it has been the men from Jerusalem. Um, In chapter 1, verse 7, Evidently some people, plural, are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. It still may be a group of people, but Paul writes whoever he may be, as though Paul doesn't know. I don't think that's that's it at all. On some level, it doesn't matter who's doing it. Whoever is doing this will pay the penalty. Again, very legal terms. I would argue that Paul didn't care who was doing this. Whoever is causing the confusion in the church, they will be judged for doing so. I'm reminded of what Paul wrote in chapter 1. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. doesn't matter to Paul. One person, a bunch of people. Angel, human. It doesn't matter. If they are preaching something other than the gospel, they will be judged. Let them be eternally condemned. When he says another gospel, by the way, and just to remind you, it's not like a different gospel. It is something that is so foreign that we actually should not call it a gospel. It is something just completely different. The fifth metaphor is in the beginning of verse number 11. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? The picture of Paul is as one who is from Jerusalem preaching circumcision for salvation. Someone who's trying to get the Gentiles to become Jews. The metaphor is that of a proselyter. And Paul has a simple question. If I'm a proselyter, then why am I being persecuted? Two things to keep in mind here. The first we saw in chapter 4, when he gave the allegory of the two women, the two sons, the two covenants, the two mountains. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. It is the way things are. The sinful nature in us as human beings seeks to persecute the things of God. In the same way that murder is an attack on the image of God. That's what God tells Noah. That's why capital punishment is necessary. Because someone is trying to attack God You you can't attack God. You attack one who's made in the image of God. So in the same way, persecution is not merely an attack on the church. It is an attack on God and his ways. And it is human nature to want to persecute the truth. But the second thing to keep in mind are two men, Titus and Timothy. And I think this might be why the men from Jerusalem are like, no, Paul's just like us. Paul preaches the same things we do. 
In Acts chapter 16, we are told about Paul's first journey to Galatia. He came to Derby and then to Lystra. These are two towns in Galatia where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. So he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. That's the story of Timothy. On the other hand, you have the story of Titus, who is mentioned in chapter 2, verse 3. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. As I mentioned when we went through this, this is more than we're told about Titus in the rest of the New Testament. We know that he is a Christian, he is a Greek, and he was not circumcised. He had been brought by Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, perhaps to be an example of the gospel preached to the Gentiles. Look, here is a Gentile Christian, and he has not been circumcised. There were men in Jerusalem who said, no, he needs to be circumcised, and Paul absolutely refused. It seems that the men from Jerusalem have forgotten about Titus. They talk about Timothy. Well, you know, Paul circumcised Timothy, so he's just like us. Why did Paul do this? In fact, it's one of the things I wish Paul had not done. If he had not circumcised Timothy, he would have made things a lot simpler. The reality is, his mother Eunice was Jewish. And in the Jewish way of thinking, you are Jewish if your mother is Jewish. His father was a Greek, didn't matter. His mother was Jewish, and therefore Paul had him circumcised, not for salvation or any religious purposes, but because he was, in fact, an ethnic Jew. So the fifth metaphor is that of Paul like a rabbi running around trying to get Gentiles to convert to Judaism. The sixth metaphor is in the end of verse number 11. In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. And here we move from the work of preaching circumcision to the place of execution, capital punishment by crucifixion. This is central for Paul, and it is scandalous. It is an offense to the men from Jerusalem. Imagine the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one from God, executed as a common criminal. How offensive this is. But Paul says, wait a minute. If you can be declared righteous before God simply by being circumcised, then you kill two birds with one stone. First of all, no more persecution. Secondly, no more offense. But the reality is, the gospel is offensive to those who think they can do it on their own. And in verse number 11, Paul takes us to the place of execution, the cross, which is central to the gospel. The seventh and final metaphor is found in verse number 12. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Said earlier, this is one of the most shocking things Paul writes in his letters. But in a real sense, it's completely logical and makes good sense. The setting is a religious one, a temple or a synagogue. One submits oneself to the rite of circumcision. For a Jewish boy, the decision is made by his parents as he is circumcised on the eighth day of his life. It is the cutting away of the foreskin. It was a rite instituted by God. It is a sign of the covenant. But it has been transformed by the men from Jerusalem. They have changed it 
as a way to win God's favor. This is the false gospel, and someone who preaches this is causing confusion and will be judged. Now, if we are not careful, because of the staccato nature of 7 through 11, we might think that by verse number 12, Paul is all worked up, that he's almost hysterical, he's almost beside himself with anger. Remember how that he wrote of the Galatians, My little children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That is, that Paul was so protective of them, he saw himself as giving birth to them and then wanting to protect them as they grow up. He was fighting against men who would seduce these little children of his, who would lead these little children astray. Stop and think a minute. As a parent, what would you do if someone did this to your child? If someone sought to seduce your child? You know, castration comes to mind as a possible penalty. And not self-castration. The parent, I think, would be more than happy to do it against the one who had perpetrated this horrible crime. And so we might think, in a sense, in verse 12, that Paul is freaking out. That he's, he's just so worked up because of what these men from Jerusalem have done. But I don't think that's the case. I think his logic is impeccable. And I think that Paul is very calm here. Stop and think a minute. If you think that cutting off the foreskin, cutting off a bit of flesh, will win you favor with God, then why not cut off more? And why not cut off more? In fact, why not cut off the whole thing? That's what Paul is saying here. And I don't think he's freaking out. I don't think he's hysterical. He's being very logical. If you think that will win God's favor, then by all means, I I wish these guys would just go ahead and emasculate or castrate themselves. By the way, in Galatia, uh, the people who worship the earth goddess, they went to a temple that was run by priests who were castrated. They were eunuchs. They dedicated that part of their body to the mother goddess. And so when Paul writes this in verse number 12, the people in Galatia, they totally get this. They understand that. Oh yeah, these priests, they have given themselves to the goddess and they've done so by castrating themselves. And Paul's like, listen, if you think you can win God's favor by cutting off part of your skin, just cut away. The reality is that it is only through Jesus Christ that we can come into the family of God. That it is only through union with Jesus that we become a child of God, that we receive the Spirit of God, that we can call God Abba, or Father. That's why Paul wrote, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You cut off a little to win God's favor, it's not going to do it. You don't cut off to win God's favor. That's nothing. It is only in Christ that we have any hope. But since we need to catch our breath from these rapid-fire metaphors that Paul has given us. But in this presentation of word pictures, Paul seeks to make his case very plainly. 
The men from Jerusalem are preaching something that is not gospel. It is not good news. It's almost not right to call it false gospel because it's not gospel at all. It's pure falseness. In doing so, Paul, in sort of on the side, gives us the marks of false teachers. First of all, they distract God's people from obeying the truth of the gospel. And they do so with talk and persuasion. You imagine that a Christian is on the track of life, seeking to obey God. And here comes a false teacher trying to sweet-talk them and persuade them to get off the track and follow them instead. The false teachers replace the call of God with their own deceptive persuasiveness. Thirdly, false teachers can have significant influence. Um, the story is told in the book of Acts when uh, Peter and John are arrested and they're brought to the Sanhedrin. And Gamaliel, one of the leading rabbis, said, Listen, listen, just let these guys go. Because if what they're preaching is false, it will disappear. That's absolutely false. False preaching is like yeast. You put it in the dough, it spreads. It contaminates everything. That is the nature of false teaching. False teachers can have significant influence. I think oftentimes we may sort of shake our heads and we're like, why are so many people going after these false teachers? That, that is the nature of the beast. Fourthly, these teachers cause confusion Fifthly, they spread false reports about the true ministers of God. And lastly, they emphasize sensational rituals, that if you do these rituals, this will win you favor with God. Ultimately, false teachers enslave people. But as Paul said, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Oh, so we're free, we can do what we want? Look, if you would, at verse number 13, which is where we will begin, the Lord willing, next week. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Next Sunday, the Lord willing, we will see that we are not to use our freedom in the wrong way. Yes, we are free. We are in the process of being free. It's the already and not yet. But there's a particular way we are to live our lives. One last thing. I think of all the metaphors that Paul uses here, it's the first one that we as Christians today find the most disturbing. Because there he talks about running a race. And it's just my impression, I could be wrong, but I get the feeling that many Christians think of salvation as um, sort of like being in a go-kart race that goes downhill. You don't have to exert any effort. And when Paul talks about running a race, it's like, oh my goodness, you're going to run a race and you, you'll sweat, you'll get cramps, you'll get tired. That's the not yet part of it. Yes, we are the people of God, but we are to run the race and not simply think, well, you know, my ticket's been punched, I'm in, nothing to worry about. No, we are to run the race. Let's pray together. Father, it's interesting that so many different parts of Scripture are written in different ways. And even in this letter of Paul's, 
after telling so many stories, suddenly we're almost assaulted by this staccato presentation of metaphors. Paul loves the Galatians. He's trying to protect them. I think he's trying to protect us as well, if we would but pay attention and listen. Help us to remember that we are running a race. We're not supposed to be coasting. We're supposed to be exerting effort. We are already your children, yet the fullness of that has yet to be experienced. We are to grow up. We're to be growing in maturity. We're to be struggling against sin. We're to seek to live lives of obedience. And yet help us to remember that that's not we don't do that to win your favor. Not at all. The temptation is so strong there. But whatever we have, Jesus has provided. And because we are your children, we are supposed to live as your children. Help us to think on these things in the coming days. To meditate on them. Again, we thank you for this country where you've placed us. Tomorrow's Independence Day. We give thanks for how you've watched over us as a nation and ask that you would continue to do so. We pray for Zib and Oscar as they make the final preparations for the wedding this Saturday. Give them peace and patience, calmness. May it be a good day. We pray for those that are coming into town for the wedding, that you would bring them here safely. Now as we leave this place, may your grace and your spirit go with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.